Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. The standout feature of the markets this week was the decision by the Bank of England to raise interest rates by 0.5%, a bigger increase than many observers had expected. Although it was clear that the bank would be taking some further action after the last strikingly poor monthly inflation figures, and the bond market already moved deals higher in anticipation, the scale of the increase prompted further weakness in fixed income. The Federal Reserve, at its latest rate-setting meeting this week, did decide to pause its rate increases, but it too hinted at further increases in interest rates to come, which helped the dollar to strengthen a little against most other currencies, including the pound. So with this uh, higher interest rate, gilt yields also continue to march upwards in sympathy, particularly at the short end of the curve, which remains more inverted, meaning the short-term bond yields are trading higher than longer-term maturities, a reversal of the normal state of affairs, more inverted than at any time since the year 2000. When I looked yesterday, only 8 out of 80 gilts quoted by uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, the investment platform, were trading above par, most of those unsurprisingly being longer dated issues with coupons more than 4%. The 0.5% issue has the dubious current honour of boasting the lowest price of all those gilts. It's trading just at 30p in the pound, down 70% from the issue price five years ago. Uh, that's a measure of how rapidly market conditions in the bond markets have changed since investors woke up to the scale of the inflation problem and the inadequacy of the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve's initial its-only-transitory message. The expectation now is that the Bank of England won't stop raising bank rate until it's in touching distance of 6% sometime in the autumn, uh, which, if that's what happens, will create further pressure on mortgage rates and on the price of most investment assets. With so much gloom about the UK around, I've noted the old phrase, the sick man of Europe has begun appearing again in the media. Not surprisingly, perhaps the UK equity market was among the worst performers this week, with the FTSE 100 down uh, nigh on 3%, and the 250 index down more than 5% on the week, while the S&P 500 and NASDAQ were down a lot less, around 1%. The Japanese market also sold off over the week, while only the Chinese market performed worse than the UK amongst larger markets. It was down more than 5%. With commodities also edging down again, the implication is that the risk of a more severe global slowdown are increasing. Bank of America this week suggested that the news from the UK has gotten so bad that the 250 index may now be becoming a contrarian buy. Buy humiliation was the rather uh, insulting headline phrase uh, it used in its latest research note. There was not a lot of cheer in these circumstances to be found in the investment trust sector. The Investment Trust Index, which measures the performance of around 180 investment trusts that feature in the All Share Index, was down 3% on the week. And the average discount has widened out to more than 17%, a new low in the current sell-off. More than 150 trusts out of the 350 ITRAC were down by 3% or more on the week, with commercial property and Chinese trusts leading the laggards. Fewer than 40 saw share price gains over the week. 
Higher bond yields have been heaping further pressure on alternative assets in particular, with discounts on commercial property, renewables and infrastructure trusts all moving to wider levels, levels not seen on a sustainable basis since around the time of the global financial crisis. Big question is, is this period of derating creating opportunities? That's among the issues I discussed this week with my two guests on the podcast, former fund manager James Carthew, now a director of the Investment Trust Research House Quoted Data, and Colette Ord the always thoughtful infrastructure and renewables analyst at Numis Securities. Turning to the news from the sector, some relatively quiet weeks recently have been replaced with a flood of results this week. Too many, I'm afraid, to go through them all today. We have our usual summary of all the latest announcements for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle, where this week's fund profile is of Polar Capital Global Healthcare. I've added some thoughts myself on recent market developments and will be producing my review of first-half performance of markets and the trust sector in particular, in a couple of weeks' time. On the corporate front, there were three items of particular interest this week. Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ticker ADIG, which sits in the flexible investment sector, has announced a strategic review in the light of its persistent hefty discount, 30% at one point this year. The directors say they will be, I quote, considering all options, including, but not limited to, a combination with another investment trust. This trust has already changed its strategy more than once in recent times, the most recent change being little more than 18 months ago. But nothing seems to be working to attract renewed demand for the shares. So we'll have to see where that one plays out. Meanwhile, CK Asset Holdings, the Hong Kong holding company, announced that it had received acceptances from 64% of the shareholders in support of its proposed ATP bid for the Troubled Social Housing Trust, Civitas Social Housing, ticker CSH. And it's declared it's bid unconditional, with other shareholders being told they have 10 days to accept the offer. Not something that my first guest today, James Carthew, will be happy about, since, as he explains in a moment, he voted his personal holding against the proposal. Elsewhere, in an unusual development, uh, Princess Private Equity announced that two of its directors, who were due to be elected at the forthcoming AGM, have withdrawn their nominations. The two included the proposed new chairman and another director put forward by Partners Group, the fund manager of the trust, as their representative on the board. Having fund management representation on boards is an unfashionable practice these days when boards are encouraged to demonstrate, perhaps flaunt might also be an appropriate word here, their independence. No reason was given for the withdrawal of the nominations, but the obvious implication is that the decision follows feedback from shareholders who are unhappy about a difficult year that the trust experience which has not only seen us to trade on a big discount of more than 30%, but also saw the trust suspending its dividend for one quarter due to a shortage of cash arising from its currency hedging program having gone a little awry. And I dare say that isn't the end of the story there. Companies reporting final results, including the Bailey Gifford Managed Global Equity Trust Monks, ticker MNKS, reporting the first results since its absorption of the smaller and no longer independent Independent Investment Trust. The NAV total return here was minus 1.6% for the year to 30th April, during which its World Index benchmark returned 3.2%. The underperformance was attributed to its growth style falling out of favour, a theme that's been picked up by most of the other Bailey Gifford Trusts, although the chairman here added that the past two years have, and I quote, reminded the managers of the importance of valuation discipline. The Venerable Global Smaller Companies Trust, ticker GSCT, first launched in 1889 
and most recently known as F&C Global Smaller Companies, before the sale of the F&C Investment Trust business to Columbia Threadneedle, also underperformed in its latest annual results period, even if the NAV total return of minus 2.9% was short of its benchmark by just 0.8%. It is reducing the UK element of its benchmark from 30% to 20% to reflect what it calls another sign of the times, I'm afraid, the diminished importance of the UK in global equity markets. This is not a yield stock, but it's only fair to report that the dividend, such as it is, has been increased again, marking the 53rd consecutive annual increase. In contrast, a Rockword Strategic, ticker RKW, the small cap UK equity specialist trust, which is now in the Harwood Capital stable, following a boardroom tussle last year, reported NAV total return of 21.4% versus a decline of 15.7% for its benchmark. M&A was the key driver here. The manager says he expects more such activity to be seen in the coming months, a theme that he picked up when he was on the podcast not so long ago. Less successful uh, reporting this week were two trusts managed by the small cap boutique Montanaro. Of its two uh, trusts, Montanaro UK Smaller Companies, ticker MTU, reported NAV total return down 12.2%, something like 4% behind its uh, benchmark, which it attributed to its uh, focus on quality and growth, a style that is out of favour. And Montanaro European Smaller Companies, MTE, likewise reported a NAV total return of minus 7.1%, again around 4% behind its benchmark. There the discount uh, has widened out to double digits. Turning to the troubled alternative asset sector, which have borne the bulk of this year's derating, we've had final results from the commercial property trust AEW, ticker AEWU, whose manager featured on the podcast recently. Here the NAV total return was minus 5.8%, That was rather better than the sector overall, based on a like-for-like valuation decline of around 9.2%. But the trust did report 99% rent collection. And it expects that its target full dividend cover, dividend wasn't fully covered in the current period, should be achieved in the next few quarters. Urban Logistics, ticker SHED Shed, similarly reported an N of A total return of 9.9% with a like-for-like valuation decline of 9.8% for its latest 12-month period. Uh, The shares in this one have been pretty weak in recent weeks, and are trading at a 27% discount to its latest March NAV. The yield there is 6.4%, somewhat less than the 8% yield that is now uh, on offer at AEW. Uh, Elsewhere, Cordian Digital, ticker CORD, which came to the market just over two years ago, one of a couple of digital infrastructure trusts. It reported that it has now fully invested all the money it raised at IPO and its subsequent raises of new money, additional money. It reported a NAV total return positive of 10% over its latest 12-month period. So a decent result there. And uh, it said that a reduction in its net debt allowed it to uh, cut its discount rate, boosting the NAV. It's declared a 4P dividend. Also reporting this week were Triple Point Energy Transition, ticker TENT, and uh, Next Energy Solar Fund, ticker NESF. And then finally, looking at interims this week, without going into the detail, we heard from JP Morgan Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa, formerly JP Morgan Russian Securities, and from Bankers Trust, a rather larger vehicle and more successful vehicle, ticker BNKR, 
uh, which sits in the global equity income sector and produced a positive interim return of 8.1%, more than its uh, MSCI World benchmark by around 4.5%. But that follows a relatively poor period in the previous couple of years. And there were also results from smaller trusts such as Henderson Opportunities, ticker HOT, which uh, underperformed its benchmark, the All Share Index, by around 6%, though the outcome was positive in the six-month period. BlackRock Income and Growth, which reported likewise an NAV per share, in this case ahead of its benchmark, the All Share Index. R&M Micro, ticker RMMC, reported an NAV total return of 4.6%. While CC Japan Income and Growth produced a total return in NAV terms of 11.3% ahead of the Topics Index. So some positives there in the interim reporting, but it has to be said that uh, in many cases this just follows a period of uh, underperformance in the previous periods. And uh, all these shares have also sold off a little in the recent derating episode. So when I talked to James Carthew, the uh, former fund manager who's now a director of Quoted Data and a regular on our podcast this week, I spoke to him on Thursday afternoon, shortly after the Bank of England had announced its half-point rise in interest rates, which was more than some at least were expecting, though I think everybody was expecting some upward movement. The day before that, we had uh, the Federal Reserve holding its interest rates where they were for the time being. However, this has not been good news for the markets today's announcement from the Bank of England, and not particularly good news in investment trusts either, is it, James? No, that's definitely true. It's been interesting. I, I went looking to see what the share price moves were of some of the trusts, and you can see big things going on in places like Hickel Infrastructure, Green Cat UK Wind. They're off uh, 2 or 3%, maybe more than that, actually, as we're talking now. Yeah, but in a way, that's a kind of knee-jerk reaction. Whenever interest rates go up, we've seen this pattern of some of these alternatives derating quite sharply commercial property, infrastructure, renewables amongst them all. But I guess the degree of the movement, which continues a decline we've seen already this week in those names, is perhaps confirmation that this bigger than expected interest rate rise has taken some people by surprise and just deterred more buyers, basically. I think that's probably true. Uh, I think it definitely did catch people on the hop. Well, I... I think if we start to go back to the beginning of the month, I think as people were thinking it would be another quarter point. But I think when the inflation numbers came out and they were much worse than expected, then I thought the half percent rise was almost inevitable, really. The question, I think, is where we're going to stop. And that's what the big debate is. So there were some people going, well, maybe there'll be another couple of quarter points rise at the beginning of the month. And so we've had all that in one go now. So <laughs> how far up do we go? I still think six, six and a quarter it is top end uh, where we might end up. But of course, we, we're looking for some kind of shift in the core inflation in particular, and that's going in the wrong direction at the moment. So uh, we just have to wait and see. And of course, these interest rate moves have been reflected in the gilts market. When I was describing events last week, uh, every single nominal gilt is trading above 4%, and uh, quite a short data they're trading above 5%. And that makes it very difficult when you're looking at something like a Hickel or a INPP, which uh, has a yield of not much more than that. So... Uh, They've really got to go some to do better than uh, the equivalent short data guilt. Indeed. I mean, there's always been an argument that the yield premium on those, the gap between the yield on those funds and the, and the yield on gilts was too big. And so the fact that that's uh, squashed down a bit is maybe not the end of the world. 
But there is a risk premium of some kind attached to these things. You have to factor in. I mean, I know that the underlying person paying the bills on these things is probably the government in most cases because they're, they're investing in, in infrastructure. It's not just UK, though. I mean, they, they are spread around the world, some of these things. So therefore, you'd think there'd be some kind of a blend here between what's going on in the UK and what's going on in Europe and the US. But still, there has to be some kind of risk premium. I think the, the other thing, that I think it's important to remember is that the dividends on these funds do go up every year, whereas the yield of the guilt course doesn't. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fixed thing oh, at least the end of its life. And so therefore, I think that at some point people will start factoring that in and then we'll make this kind of readjustment. It feels a bit to me like these things were ever sold now. Yeah, and I think a better comparison theoretically is against index link rather than uh, the nominal gilts, of course. Meanwhile, the Fed did pause, but also made quite hawkish noises about uh, possible further increases. Uh, but that's reflected also, we've seen the impact on the currency market. Those high interest rates here are pushed up sterling, and that does have an impact on the investment trust sector, on equity investment trusts as well, particularly since many of them uh, operate overseas and uh, their dividends come in from overseas. The equity market trusts have also been, well, they haven't been, uh, doing much, have they, recently? No, and I think, again, that's something that's quite important to remember, that a lot, even of um, UK companies, are owning uh, most of their profits overseas, and so therefore there's going to be a translation effect on those, that, that, that those profits are going to be reduced in, in sterling terms. And that is something to uh, think about when you're looking at the certain market. I'm hopeful that we are there thereabouts in the US, Actually, maybe there may be another sort of quarter point in it, but not much more. And they do tend to act as a leading indicator for where we are. So even though we've got our own uh, particular problems here in the UK, I would like to think that a few months down the line, we, we may be seeing the peak in rates and, and that we would have seen the peak in inflation and things would be heading in the right direction. It's just at the moment, it just all seems a bit miserable. <laughs> It's all bad news at the moment, yeah, coming from most sides. Apart from, of course, from the wonders of AI, which is uh, helping keep the uh, S&P 500 going at least. And we've got uh, stocks like NVIDIA selling on ridiculous multiples. So uh, that's confounded a few uh, bears anyway in the US. Well, let's talk about one or two individual stocks then that have made some noises recently. Let's kick off with Monks. That's a Bailey Gifford Global Equity Trust, been going a long time, and now trading on a big discount, something around 11-12%, I think. They produced some results this week, which not surprisingly weren't particularly good. But what's your take on monks at the moment? There are a few interesting things in the statement, actually. First, I think that the managers said, look, we made some mistakes. And it's always refreshing and honest when managers do that. And the other thing is that the chairman highlighted the fact that it was good news that they only had about 4% of the fund in unquoted private securities which is obviously maybe good news for monks, but that's implying that <laughs> the likes of Scottish Mortgage and Jihalian and all the other Paddington funds are in more trouble than they are. I think the main message that came across was that they probably weren't paying enough attention to valuations of growth stocks. So they were picking some great companies, but they weren't paying enough attention to the, the price that they were paying for them or the fact that maybe this had been um, top-slicing some of them or even selling them altogether. That aside, we've seen a kind of rebalancing the portfolio. It's not all in growth stocks. They they do try and have a mix of of solid profit producers, um, some exciting growth stuff, and then some cyclical businesses. And there's been a sort of re-weighting because the 
well, mainly because the value of the growth stuff has, has fallen, so <laughs> that's made everything else look slightly better. Um, but I think consciously too, the other thing that happened during the year was that it absorbed independent investment trust. So it was a £173 million fund that was run by former managers of Bailey Gifford. And it was positioned a bit more defensively. So it brought in the port, into the portfolios and some house builders and things like that that I think monks who otherwise wouldn't have had. So that's helped address the balance bit as well. So I do hold this one. I, I do like it. And, and the reason I like it is it's a more tempered, balanced version of what Bailey Gifford are doing their other funds. And that to me is appealing at the moment. Yes, and that's interesting. I mean, in the sense that I just looked up recently uh, relative performance against Scottish Mortgage, and it's sort of outperformed by uh, getting on for 50% since the low point in October 2021. So uh, it's kind of a bit more horses for courses. Uh, the Bailey Gifford Trusts are not all kind of mono-stylistic, shall we say. And, and obviously, you've got Saints as well, which is a very different animal, and that's been performing much better as well uh, in relative terms. So Monks is, uh, as I say, trading on a big discount. It hasn't been this wide since... Um, I think 2017, but it always used to trade on a discount. I think came back until um, Charles Plowden took over and uh, they revamped the whole approach. So it's not unusual on a very long historical perspective, but obviously by recent standards, that's quite wide. And let's talk about some other news this week. Uh, we've seen another trust announcing this year's favourite phrase, strategic review. Uh, and that's <laughs> Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth. And this is a very curious animal because it's already had about three strategic reviews and it's only been around for, well, it's been around for a long time, but more recently it's done a number of changes. And Aberdeen, it does appear that they're rationalising their portfolio of investment trusts. But this, of course, is a board decision. What do you make of this one? I mean, it, it basically hasn't found a niche, has it? No, unfortunately not. I think this is a great shame, really, because I was saying to somebody else earlier in the week when I saw this, that Probably, if it, if it stuck to its knitting at the beginning as a global equity income trust, it would probably be much in demand and well over a billion pounds. <laughs> Instead, it's shrunk and shrunk and shrunk as it keeps reinventing itself. My main takeaway, I think, is that it seems too soon to do this. I know it's trading on a 25% discount or maybe close to 30 but still, a lot of things are out of favour at the moment. It's not unique in this, and it's only just made the shift decisive shift to invest in private assets. We know that private assets are unloved at the moment because everybody's favoring liquidity and so private equity and private debt and all these other funds are all trading discounts too. It hasn't had long enough in the new form to prove itself one way or the other. And it does feel to me that if you keep putting these things up by the roots over and over again, in the end the plant dies. And I think what we've had here is that they finally killed it. And I find it hard to imagine that now that it will be the dominant partner in whatever happens next. So either it's going to be liquidated altogether, which I think is unlikely, but um, maybe possible. More likely, it's going to be absorbed into another fund. What that fund is doing, we'll just have to wait and see. Whether they want to stick to the kind of private asset stuff, that is possible, and it would make some sense to, to combine with another fund. But as I said already, all of those funds are trading at big discounts, so you don't sort out the discount problem by doing that. So it may be that they, they look to come up with a solution that is currently in vogue. And then you run the real risk of doing then, of just switching from something that's currently unloved to something that is loved at the moment, and then you get another shift in markets, and yet again, you're in the wrong thing. So I'm, I'm a bit sort of dubious as to whether this is a good idea, uh, but having pressed the button now, it's almost inevitable that something's going to happen. I mean, it's got a market cap of around 260 million, something like that. So it's, it's something that another trust, even if they lost some in a merger or some kind of 
rollover option. I mean, they'd be still worth having these assets, particularly in a market where, you know, raising new money is very, very difficult. Yeah, that's true. That is true. The thing is, it would depend whether you actually wanted these assets to roll into your fund or not. So that, that's the first big question. So if, if it's something completely different, then you want to sell the entire portfolio. If it is another fund that invests in these sorts of things, then you might want to keep some of it. But obviously, I think whatever you do in these circumstances, you've got to offer a cash exit. And given that it's on a wide discount, it seems a lot most people are going to be taking the cash box if they can. That's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time now to turn those assets back from being private investments where they're bought on, on sort of long duration back into cash again. Um, it could take years to sort out. So again, the um, shareholders and the investor growth are a bit stuck, which is why I, I'd be inclined to say it wouldn't be better to leave it alone. This phrase, strategic review, is now in vogue. It nearly always means that you're either going to liquidate or merge or do something similar. And there have been a number of examples where we've actually seen boards sort of kind of hanging out their shingles, so to speak, like Edison Property, for example, saying, you know, come and get us or, or we can come and get you kind of thing. And we're going to see more of that, presumably, as long as these market conditions go on. Boards will either, you could say, sort of panic if you're taking your view, or they have so many shareholders bending their ear, they must do something that they feel obliged to do something. Uh, but it's going to go on, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I do think so. I mean, basically, the system on avenue investment growth operates in a flexible investment sector, but it's one of a subset of those funds that invest in a kind of multi-asset portfolio to produce an income. And within that subset, you've already seen the momentum multi-asset value fund press the button. You know, it's going to convert to a unit trust, so that's going to disappear. JP Morgan Multi-Asset Income and Growth, which is the, the other fund in that sector, has a continuation vote, this AGM coming up in a couple of weeks. I think it will get through it. And if it does get through it, and it is trading much closer to asset value, it could potentially be, be the company that absorbs the other one, but it's relatively small. So it's only 75 million. It needs to grow. Maybe, as you say, if we do some kind of deal and it ends up doubling in size, but most of the other um, adding shareholders tip the cash box. Maybe that's a good solution for everybody. I don't know. Well, I'd have to wait on to see on that one. As I say, it's always difficult with mergers in particular because of all the usual difficulties that boards have in coming to agreement about these things for many good reasons or bad reasons. Let's talk about Rockwood, something which has been rather more successful recently. Slightly a long sort of saga over control of what is now called Rockwood Strategic. Anyway, it has ended up in the hands of Christopher Mills's fund business. And it's got off to a pretty good start, hasn't it? Recently issued its first share for a long time and produced some good results as well. Do you like this one as well? I do, actually. One of these things, in difficult markets like this, if you've got an investment strategy that allows you to make money regardless of what the wider market is doing, then that's a big tick in the box. So there are funds like this, like the sort of the corporate governance funds like the AVR Japan and things like that. But Rockwood and some of the other sister funds that it's, it's within that, that Crystal Mill stable are buying unloved smaller companies that they think are just the wrong price and then looking for ways to unlock that value. Um, and more often than not, that ends up being a takeover. And what we have seen in the last sort of year or so there's more overseas buyers, more private equity buyers, running a slide rule over the UK market, which is particularly unloved on a kind of international basis, and um, alighting upon some of these companies and thinking, yeah, this, this is a good bargain. And even if I pay a decent premium to the current share price, I, I've, I've picked up something at a reasonable value. 
And that's how it's making money. And good luck to it. So it had one big company got taken out last year, and that, that made um, most of the difference. But there are, there are a number of things in this portfolio that it thinks are attractive and could continue to add to returns this year. It's a concentrated fund, so it's not going to perform in line with the UK small cap market because the returns on these things tend to be quite lumpy. So you can get a long period where nothing much happens, and then, say, if you get a taker or something, then, then the NAB leaps. It's not about yield. I don't think it actually paid a dividend this year. But it, it does, I think, to me, look interesting in this market. And Richard Staverley is the, the sort of main manager on it, who's been involved with it in various different, working for different asset houses over time. I think he's a good guy, actually. So um, it should do well, especially with the extra resource that, that Chris Mills can bring to it. So if the force is with him at the moment, obviously, was it a big discount or bigger discount and now trading just around par? Uh, shares are all-time high, I think. So that one's doing well. At least there's some good news somewhere out there. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to grow more. That's the thing. I mean, trading at asset value, in the course of all of this toing and throwing, it did end up shrinking. So if it can re-expand again, that would be great news. Yeah, it's quite small. Only 50 million or so at the moment. So they've clearly got ambitions to grow that if they can. So consolidation, we know, is going on in the sector. We've just been talking about it. I'll just have a quick mention of Civitas Social Housing. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, and we don't yet know the final vote on how the proposed takeover by uh, the company that uh, already has a big stake in Civitas uh, will go, what the acceptances are like. What are you expecting for this one? I mean, I imagine it is going to go through in the end. But what are your reflections on the, on the great Civitas saga, if you like? Well, yeah, as you say, we don't know the outcome until I think it's tomorrow is the final I think they're not going to get it, actually. So at the moment, they've been busy hoovering up shares in the market when they can because it's trading very marginally below the offer price. And I think they've bought up to 17% of the fund now, just over 17% of the fund. But the acceptance level, as we stand, is only just about two and a bit percent. And me and a number of other shareholders made a lot of noise saying, we think this is derisory, the, the, the level of this bid, and we need to improve it if you want to succeed. I'm hoping it's not going to go through. Right. Well, by the time this goes out, we will know the outcome. We, we will know the answer. And if it doesn't go through, then it raises all sorts of interesting questions because obviously the board and the manager all sided with the bidder. Well, to be fair, the management company is is sort of involved with the bidder. It's a, all part of Lee Karshing in Hong Kong. It's all his, his sort of money. CK Bidco and they own a chunk of Civitas, the manager. So with everybody now in the same pot saying we should have been selling out an ATP, but with the NEV supposed to be 109, you do wonder, <laughs> come on then, explain your rationale, because that's what they haven't done. At that point, they said, we know we're bidding a huge discount to NEV, but you've got to get out now while the game is good, otherwise it's all going to be wrong. If they said that, then maybe we would have ticked the box, but because they didn't, they've now got to explain to people why they think they should carry on being the same people running the thing and, and the same people on the board. I would like to see some change on the board, I think, after this. In other words, it looks like an opportunistic bid to get these assets on the cheap, notwithstanding the problems that there have been for the company, the short seller attack and uh, some of the genuine issues that seem to be there about the business model and so on and the price that uh, was paid for assets and so on. But you think it's got a future and you'd like to see somebody else come in and have a look at it with, a, if you like, a fresh eye that more uh, accurately reflects the shell. The, the I mean, I think it would be nice to have a sea counterfeiter come in and, and uh, make a higher offer. Obviously, that didn't happen. But it is quite hard to get your head around, I think, what these things are worth. So I think the question is, if you were prepared to sell out ATP but the NEV is 108, is the NEV wrong? 
Right, exactly. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Either it's uh, not worth 109p or it yeah. is and you're just trying to get it on the cheap, yeah. So anyway, we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. We'll, we'll know more tomorrow. Let me talk finally, uh, James, about another trust which is Cordiant Digital. It's one of the digital infrastructure trusts that came to the market not so long ago. And they've all unfortunately run into this uh, kind of very hostile market environment, trading on a big discount. But Cordiant has got a decent business, has it not? I think it's right to say that uh, you feel quite positive about this one, don't you? I think so. I mean, I think the results sort of speak for that. The NEV total return for the year was 10%, which I know is, is not massively exciting, but that, that's, that's not bad, really, especially given the current environment. And given that, because like most of these funds, it's valued its assets based on their future cash flows. And to reflect the fact that interest rates have been rising, it did up the discount rate that it, it deflates those cash flows by moving back to the present value. So against that headwind, it still managed to make progress. And it does sound like there are things going on operationally that are all working in its favour. So it's, it's three individual businesses that make up the, the portfolio. Seem to be winning new customers and, and doing okay. So, yeah, I do think this is unloved for, you know, it's, it's hard to fathom why. I, I know the corresponding fund, the, the DG9, Digital Infrastructure, did have a problem in that it, it's lost its management team and also it's brought into a whole bunch of businesses that need more and more and more cash as they, they build their portfolio. So it's back to suffering to a whole. Cordian doesn't seem to have the problem to the same extent. It's got a bit more wiggle room in terms of its debt facilities. It has actually just pulled down some more money on its euro bond. So um, it's just got another 150 million euros to spend on its portfolio. And I do think it's sort of set fair. I mean, there, there is, again, an argument which we started off talking about at the beginning, which is what is the right yield for these businesses? And, and obviously these things are adjusting in the, against the um, backdrop of what the much higher risk-free rates but nevertheless, I, I do think this is, is not a bad business and probably will survive and thrive. As you say, they are paying a yield, these two trusts, even though they've only come to market quite recently. And it's around, what, 5% or something in the case of Cordiant and, and more like 8 or something for Digital 9. But they've had those problems, as you say. But I guess one of the issues may just be that this is still a new sector, taking time for people to get used to it, find out how I everything works. Yeah. So it hasn't been through a market economic cycle before. So you're really not quite sure how it's going to play out. It is a new technology in many cases, but uh, untested. Yeah. I think that's all true. That's all true. I think people don't really understand the sector. It was sold to people in the heady days of easy money and everything else, and, and people chucked money because it was a new idea and, and a diversifier and, and great. And maybe they didn't quite understand what they were buying. But the underlying thesis that we're all spending more and more on digital communications and we need this kind of infrastructure backbone as we trade more and more data, and they're things like data centers and fiber and everything else. It does seem to me that, that that all stacks up. So, yeah, I do think it's, it ought to be set there. But when people actually believe that or not, we will have to wait and see. I think maybe, maybe some time yet. I actually could ask you one more question before we go, uh, James, which is, uh, have you been personally tempted to uh, chase the uh, AI theme? And if so, you can actually do that sort of indirectly through some investment trust, can you not? Uh, how would you do that if you were minded to do it in that way? Even if you bought the story, I should say. <laughs> I think you alluded at the beginning to the rather stretched valuation of NVIDIA. I think that does weigh in my mind. If you want to play AI, and there is definitely a story there, 
the trust that seems to be most sensitive to it is actually Manchester and London, which is maybe not something that most people would have heard of. It's one of these funds where it's like a sort of family-controlled business. So one family owns most of it. And the guy is in love with the whole theme of AI and has been positioning his fund that way for quite a while. So it's got an enormous holding in Microsoft and then smaller holdings in other things that are sensitive to these stuff. And it's done remarkably well, outperforming even the technology funds. There, there are the two technology trusts, so, so Polar Capital uh, Technology and uh, Anias Technology. And both of those have sizable weight in the area. Polar's uh, a bit less aggressive than most because it's benchmark aware, so it doesn't take two big bets against what's going on underneath. But NVIDIA is now one of the biggest stocks in the world, so NVIDIA and Apple and and, and so therefore they are big positions in this portfolio. Further down the line, I don't know, that there are individual businesses within the growth capital funds, so things like Chrysalis and the Schroeder Capital Global Innovation that do have some AI exposure. It's interesting, though, if you talk to the tech guys, that they're all saying this is a classic story, um, like the internet problem before it, where you want to own the picks and shovels, so you want to own the things, the semiconductor makers and that sort of thing, rather than the things that are going to use AI for wonderful things. But having said that, I can see, like with Chris's portfolios, where it's got a couple of businesses that are using AI to do um, cybersecurity stuff or fraud detection. I think they, they could be successful, sizable businesses, but we just have to wait and see what happens. Yes, and of course, the really important question is whether or not AI or chatbots will eventually replace us doing what we're doing. <laughs> sure, not that far away. <laughs> they surely can't. Uh, well, they're well known for being <laughs> not always totally committed to the truth, shall we say. But uh, they spin a good story anyway, which can still get you a long way in this world, for better or worse. Anyway, that was uh, James Carthew, Director of Credit Data, former fund manager, and well known to this podcast. And I look forward to talking to you again soon, uh, James. Thanks very much. It was a good time this week to catch up again with Colette Ord, who is the Alternatives Assets Investment Trust Analyst at Numis Securities, a wise voice on this particular subject. And who better to talk to this week after we've seen yet another interest rate rise from the Bank of England, another 50 basis points, more than some were expecting, though I think the increase itself was not unexpected. What's been the immediate market reaction to that, uh, Colette? Well, really, to some extent, the market had expected, as you say, upwards to a 50 basis point move. And, and really, we've seen this week, this last month, particularly being a weak period for the whole of the listed infrastructure sector. And so inflation prints higher than expected or rather remaining stubborn, core inflation rising. So we'd started to see that already being priced into shares and, and sort of average share price returns for the sector as a whole are down 10% year to date in 2023. And as I say, a large proportion of that has come in the last month alone. So weakness again today, but as I say, a lot of it already priced in. But yes, with interest rates at 5%, again, the ongoing question investors asking themselves uh, about the attractiveness of the yields on offer in infrastructure, which has been a big reason to own the space, and just hopefully trying to understand the quality of returns that are on offer from the peer group you know, within a rising rate environment. And given that ten uh, percent decline, as you say, across the whole sector, differences within that by subsector, most of that come from derating, or has it actually been uh, NAVs coming down as well? No, at the moment it's share price derating only. So that's the challenge we've got here 
actually NAV returns have been incredibly robust. And that's even including increases in discount rates, which have been put through valuations to reflect the higher rate environment. And we see currently at the moment compared to discount rates that have been reported in renewables as recent as March. Similarly, we've had some recent data points across the different strategies. We've had Cordian today, for example, we've had uh, Pantheon. So we've had a range of discount rates to March from various infrastructure strategies in the mid-market space or Core Plus in the renewable space, in the core space, what we've seen is is resilience in NAV returns. And in fact, for Cordiant, we saw some very strong positive NAV total returns coming through. And that's notwithstanding discount rates increasing. And that's partly, again, reflecting good operational performances in the businesses themselves. There is a high level of contractual visibility over cash flows, which helps. These are actively managed portfolios. So unlike Gilts, you know, the managers are in control of growing the cash flows in many cases. And of course, we've seen the benefit of inflation protection. So whilst inflation levels remain high, that is generally a positive for valuation across the space. So share prices have derated NAVs have not moved. In fact, NAVs have gone up in many cases or remained stable. And that's, as I say, reflecting rising discount rates. So there's a big dislocation at the moment between portfolio performance and share price performance. So wearing your analyst's hat, what's the question you're asking yourself? Are you asking yourself whether the NAVs are actually correct? I mean, are they using the right discount rates? They may have gone up, but have they gone up enough? Or are you thinking that this is a case where investors have just basically been either spooked out or just there's no liquidity or whatever the reason might be for not many buyers out there? Do you actually trust those NAVs? I do. You know, it's not to say that there isn't further upward pressure on discount rates for certain businesses, certain funds. The macro outlook where rates will peak, where gilt yields will peak, will have a bearing on on discount rates. So we're not discounting an increase in discount rates for certain funds from here, but we're not expecting it to be of the order that current share prices are implying. You know, if we were to assume that share prices equal NAVs, then it's suggesting that discount rates need to be close to 10%. That would give premiums over risk-free rates in excess of 500 basis points. Now, this is an average number across all of the strategies we look at. It differs between the different strategies, of course. But I just think given the quality generally of cash flows that we see, importantly, the financing risk or the impact of rising rates on earnings in this sector, again, is not as significant as I think the market is suggesting. So I think that there are good bits of value to be had. You know, you're seeing discount rates for some businesses in excess of 20-30%. Those that have been seen more as bond proxies have taken um, the most significant hit in recent weeks. So the core infrastructure funds, which have been very stable performers since they launched in 06-07, you know, they've taken a significant hit in this period. Their discount rates at the moment, historic discount rates are around about seven and a bit percent. But bearing in mind these are Cash flows with good levels of inflation linkage, 70 to 80% in some cases. And so whilst there is prospects of rising discount rates from current levels, there are mitigating factors that will dampen any impact on NAV. So we don't think discounts, which are quite wide, uh, normally wide discounts suggest that NAVs have to come down a lot or earnings or dividends are under threat. And we don't feel those three points are relevant to the degree that share prices are implying at the moment across the list of instruction names. 
So do you think some investors may be looking at the wrong comparisons, if you like? You can obviously compare the yields and the discounts on infrastructure assets with you could do it with short data gilts, you could do it with long data gilts, or you could do it with index linked. And the spreads, as you say, would differ depending which one you choose. So do you think yeah. people are just being rather too simplistic saying, I can get 5% on a two-year gilt, and I'm only going to get 5% on my infrastructure, core infrastructure trust. So why should I bother? That's not the kind of thinking we should be applying here. I think there's a little bit of that at the moment. And obviously, we would say that's not the only metric to look at. And interestingly, actually, you can get a 6% dividend yield on a core infrastructure fund today. Historically, it's been five. Today, it's just over six. Those are well covered. So that is a current dividend yield. And, and let's remember that these are growing income streams. So we'd expect there to be income growth. So again, comparing a current yield with a gilt, it doesn't tell you all of the story that you need to know. Again, in terms of what else is the market been worried about. Of course, the cost of finance has gone up for everybody. And investors are, I guess, maybe thinking that infrastructure as an asset class is generally highly geared, uh, depending on the different assets that you may own. There are actually, in fact, some listed infrastructure companies that have hardly any leverage, less than 3% of net asset values. They're still trading on a discount. you know. So, it can't be the threat of rising costs. They are delivering double-digit discount rates, well-covered dividend yields. So yeah, I think the market has sort of, it's not thinking through all of the key data points and all of the strategies. So we, we see that as an opportunity. That's not to say that it isn't going to be challenging for investors because sentiment is very firmly against listed infrastructure at the moment. And we need some positive catalysts. We need, as do all real assets, we need some more security around the macro outlook before people will get comfortable in putting more money to work because we've seen very sensible investors put money to work in very fine businesses trading very cheaply and the shares will still go down. This morning's Cordiant results, very strong indeed, healthy dividend cover. They don't have any refinancing issues. They've got investment firepower to fund growth capex. You know, they've got a really good disclosure in their results. They've got a strong chair. They've been buying back some shares, not not an awful lot, but they've been doing all the things that traditionally you might want an active, well-managed investment trust to do, and, and, and the shares barely moved on the news. So again, it tells us that the market is taking its time to think through the process, and that for us, it's an opportunity set, but we, we appreciate that the sentiment is firmly against at the moment. Can you give us uh, just a couple of examples of uh, trusts that have minimal leverage, uh, but are still trading on uh, significant discounts? What would be an example of that? The one that stands out actually on leverage particularly is a company called Victory Hill Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities. Uh, ticker is GSEO. It's uh, a business that invests in energy transition globally and they do so really appraising their investments with no leverage. There's one asset with a very modest level of leverage, so you know around 3% or less of NAV. And that to us is is a pretty sort of unique situation. They're paying in excess of 5% dividend yield. It's covered 1.4 times. And again, uniquely, it is paying a covered dividend and yet roughly half of its assets are under construction still. And so when you're thinking about the potential returns from these portfolios, you've got a, a good level of base income and an attractive yield and you've got this potential for future NAV growth, not driven by market moves, but driven by assets moving from construction into operation. So some real milestones to come through that should see that NAV perform over time. So again, you know, there are little gems in the space, which I think have been caught up in the general fear around real assets and what 
real assets can deliver in a higher rate environment. And it's those kind of strategies, actually, which should be less sensitive to rates in any case, which are trading quite cheaply. So GSEO is a good example. Even some of the mature funds, you know, generally speaking, you've got leverage across the peer group, different strategies ranging from between 20 to 40% of gross assets, which, you know, we don't think is particularly onerous. Importantly, most of that, the majority of that is structural. The majority of that structural debt across the piece is fixed rate or, or hedged. So there's no exposure to interest rate costs at the moment. You know, in many cases, that gearing is amortizing down over time. So the debt is being paid off. So we don't see the refinancing risk that perhaps we might see elsewhere in the real asset sector. One or two property names will have to refinance reasonable amounts. So generally speaking, it's between 20 and 40% is the gross asset uh, gearing as a percentage of GAV across the infrastructure space, but with an outlier with uh, GSEO, which has much, much less leverage. Does it make a difference where your assets are located? Sterling has obviously strengthened a bit and may go out further if guilt yields continue to rise relative to other countries. Is that a factor? Because that obviously, if your revenues come from overseas, there's a, at least a translation effect in the revenues you receive. Yeah, I mean, the harsh reality is the way the share price performance has been is that there's been very little differentiation across strategies or across portfolios. So the market hasn't really been thinking through necessarily all of those data points about where the cash flows are coming from, who's paying the cash flows, the quality of the cash flows, the debt that supports the investment in those cash flows. So, of course, we're sitting in the UK. These are predominantly sterling paying businesses. There are two that are euro paying businesses in terms of dividend yield. So sterling is naturally going to be our focus and sterling rates are naturally going to be a comparison. But no, the market isn't over-penalising international funds or UK funds. They've all taken a fairly uh, substantial hit, irrespective of where their cash flows are coming from at the moment. So again, that's an opportunity if you can dig amongst all of those key data points that you need to understand and get comfortable, then these discounts can perhaps uh, pose a good opportunity to buy access to some pretty attractive yields and total return potential. You talked about what was needed was a catalyst, and that might be either a macro development or, of course, it might be somebody coming uh, hunting for value in the sector from outside, a predator of some sort. Do you think we might see that? Are we getting to the kind of levels where you think people will be dusting down their uh, calculators, uh, some of the bigger players in infrastructure space looking to get something on the cheap, yeah? I mean, personally, I think we're getting to those levels. At the moment, we can see what the current the funds are doing at the moment is obviously we've got a couple of syndication processes ongoing. So there's a number of funds looking to sell assets to prove values, etc. ongoing. So there are, you know, portfolio-led potential catalysts that the market might take comfort from. And that's again, that's across a range of different infrastructure project types. So we've got Next Energy announced they're divesting a pretty meaningful part of their portfolio and they'll use proceeds to fund opportunities, pay down debt and potentially buybacks. They announced that back in April and they've sort of guided maybe towards the end of the year where we might hear something there. We've got 3i Infrastructure has got an energy transition asset up for sale. Again, it's not their biggest asset, but it should be a meaningful valuation data point. Hickel sold a proportion of an asset fairly recently around valuation. So there's a couple of things that the funds are doing themselves. But yes, historically, we have seen when discounts have been around levels that have been in the double digit camp, we have seen external parties look to own these cash flows because fundamentally, you know, there are some portfolios, particularly in the renewable space, where you can't build them 
for the valuation that the share price implies. So if renewables, for instance, is not a, a thematic that's going away, and uh, you know, net zero journeys entrenched in legal targets and, you know, for the health and wellness of, of ourselves and future generations, you know, renewable energy isn't going anywhere. And so you'd have to imagine the listed space, if it's not already on people's watch lists, I'm sure it will be because discounts are widening. We don't think it is because the portfolios are overvalued. If there is upward pressure, we think it's not to the degree that the discounts are implying. And in the meantime, you're getting very attractive yields, 6% in core, 7% in renewables, in some instances, 8% from other strategies. And that to us is pretty attractive. So yes, we'd expect potentially for there to be some sort of M&A. We saw it last back in 2018 in terms of the fund, uh, in terms of the fund space. We saw one of the core portfolios taken private by some pension fund money, a handsome premium to the then share price and NAV. Whether or not that happens again, you know, rarely have we seen double digit discounts persist in certainly core infrastructure where there is a high level of visibility and a high level of inflation protection. We have not seen, even post the GFC, when discount rates did get to double-digit territory, you know, that was exacerbated by non-portfolio-specific concerns where a number of owners of these funds were having financial balance sheet issues and the funds transitioned to another investment manager. So it wasn't portfolio related, but related to the owners of some of these businesses. So yeah, we would think that these valuations would prompt people to look at the sector hard uh, because there's you know some interesting assets to acquire here. Do you think there's any lingering impact in terms of renewables from the windfall tax and so on, or is that issue gone away? When you're talking to people about particular trusts, is there still a hangover in that? The political situation is very fluid. We've got election next year. We've got possibly a Labour government coming in, which may be, whichever government comes in, going to be short of money. Do you think there's some kind of political risk factor in here as well, or is it just overblown now? How has that all settled down? I mean, actually, what the energy generator levy has done is actually reduced the exposure to power price volatility. Obviously, the renewables, where they've been able to capture high prices, are paying more taxes. As a result of that, actually, the market forecasts for energy and the power price that's assumed in, in a lot of these NAVs beyond sort of 2027 or so is significantly lower than prices we've seen post the invasion of Ukraine. So I don't think the issue for renewables is EGL related. I mean, of course, there's always political risk for infrastructure. But again, I don't think that's what's driving share price weakness. I think there has been a, a little bit of a misunderstanding perhaps of how quickly a falling power price might impact returns. And as we've seen in Q1 NAVs, we've seen pretty stable valuations. We've seen the power price come down in forward curves and that's been reflected in NAVs and discount rates have increased. And yet NAVs have remained broadly stable. Look, you know, Q1 NAVs in renewable energy was sort of in a range of minus one and a half to plus one and a half, which given the seismic moves we've seen in, in regulatory intervention in the sector and given discount rate changes, with many funds going up over 130, 40 basis points from peak discount rates, I think a stable NAV to a very modest decline, paying fully covered dividends, median dividend cover in terms of the renewable sector is, is about 1.7 times. So, you know, again, the prospect for income growth is still good because managers have locked in power prices for the next 12, 18 months, 24 months. They're paying the excess tax already. And beyond that, power prices 
aren't at a level where the EGL was set anyway. So, you know, I think that EGL is not the concern here. Power prices should always be on people's radar. We don't think that power price assumptions at the moment are sort of in terms of the near term impact of the falling power price that we've seen. We don't think that is going to filter through to NAVs dramatically because we still think there are offsetting features and a lot of funds actually have hedged their exposure to the short term power price volatility that we've seen. We've heard a lot recently about the consolidation in the wealth management industry and therefore a lot of focus on the size of investment trusts. And looking through the infrastructure sector, there's some very large trusts, of course, uh, you know, among the top 10, we've a number of infrastructure trusts, uh, big ones that have been around for a while, like Inco, UK Wind and so on. Uh, but there are also quite a few which are in the perhaps sub 500 camp, 200 million or so. Do you think they have reason to be concerned about these liquidity issues that are affecting demand from wealth managers? Yes, I think that is the case. I mean, of the 30 stocks that we look at in the listed infrastructure space, the median market cap is £607 million. 11 of the companies are FTSE 250 constituents. There's a good number of them with over a billion market cap. There's at least one company, Greencoat UK Wind, who's not that far off going into the FTSE 100. So there are a reasonable amount of that 30, as I say, in reasonable liquidity position. But you're right, there have obviously been in sort of the newer sectors, usually in energy efficiency or energy transition, as some of them more broadly refer to themselves, where we've seen these smaller strategies come to market and struggle. Some of the later vintages of renewable businesses, there's some quite small portfolios in the US. There's one or two that we've seen in Europe that have come reasonably late to the market. And and I think what's really important to understand when we're looking at those businesses that might still be quite small now because they came rather late to the sector, is to really look at what their proprietary access to deal flow is. What are their origination potential? And, you know, sadly, we've seen with certainly some of the US-focused funds, we've seen challenges in accessing pipeline and with origination there of some of the more European-focused names. We'd say, ironically, you know, Aquila's at the smaller end of the peer group. It's not the smallest by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing we think is really not fully appreciated is that Aquila Capital, the manager, is one of the biggest investors in European renewable space. And they have, uh, you know, a 10 gigawatt pipeline. They're a very significant player in renewables. And this is right the way through the life cycle of these assets. So again, the current equity market is not supporting growth at the minute, but I think those funds that can genuinely show they have access to accretive deals that can enhance liquidity over time should remain because of fundamentally we think renewable funds that are well set up buying assets in the right places for the right reasons have a very genuine place in, in investor portfolios. So yes, there are a number of smaller funds and I think of those, what I would be really pressing boards and managers on is to prove that they have access to grow from here and to prove that they can continue to generate returns from the existing asset base. And I think that wheedles a few out. And so, yeah, we'd expect maybe some of the smaller names to not be around in disappear in, 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 in a time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would mean a smaller universe for you to study and analyze, of course, Sir Colette. Okay, yeah. well, thank you so much for that. That's a very helpful take on this. I mean, essentially, the message seems to be the market has reacted and been reacting all year to this threat of uh, higher bond yields, but uh, maybe it's gone too far. 
and we'll all hope so anyway. Absolutely, yes. Um, we definitely think there's detailed work to do, obviously, to really understand the different businesses and portfolio shapes, but we think there's some really high-quality businesses trading far too cheaply uh, with good return prospects that are competitive through the economic cycle. So that was Colette Ord, the Alternative Assets Analyst at uh, Numerous Securities, specialising in infrastructure and renewables in particular. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.